chair. Somebody been sitting in my chair. <laughs> I said, somebody been sitting in my chair. Stand up when we're performing. Uh, either when we're performing or when we're praying, I stand up. Yeah, and I actually sat down and played the other night at Mila's, right, Rod? Actually sat down and played at Mila's the other night. That bench, that that bar stool was really nice. Yeah. Yeah, that's what she told me too. That was my first night there. And I didn't bring. I figured she'd have a bass guitar. I figured you know, she'd have everything there. I didn't. So that's when I left. Well, good morning, FCC Church. Oh, wait. Morning, morning, morning. Did I say that a little too softly and loudly? Good morning, FCC Church. Hey! Hey, there we are. Welcome to another Sunday morning of praise and worship. Could you please stand up and worship along with us? Captain's free. 
His blood breaks the chains. Every knee will bow before the lion and the lamb. Every knee will bow before him. First John 2.23 says, No one who die, denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful that we can come together this morning for this time of worship. And Father, we're here to boldly proclaim Jesus Christ together. And Lord, we're here because of him. And Father, we're blessed because of him and through him. Father, I pray that as we're gathered together this morning that we can just have a, a, a wonderful time of worship, a time that will inspire us and help bring change to us and help us to grow closer to you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody today. Glad that you've chosen to worship with us today as we're lifting up Christ together. I want to welcome those who are joining us online because I know we have a nice following there. This morning, please make sure you fill out your connection card for us. And for those online, you see a number that you can uh, dial... Uh, I say dial, I guess punch up. That's old school. To, uh, to, get to, that, to, that, to get to the connection card. This morning we're here to worship Christ together. I'm going to turn things back over to the praise team and let them continue leading us in worship this morning.
Psalm 27, 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom should I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom should I dread? Training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way, since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. 1 Timothy 4, 8. He will abandon, he will deceive, 
He won't desert us, he won't ever leave He'll never forsake us, he won't ever run He'll never reject us, the faithful one job we had a couple of our guitarists out this week so it made it a little bit more hectic for the preparation but they did a great job with that and for my next stunt I'm going to see if I can not trip again I'll see you next fall <laughs> oh boy it begins are you the type of person that likes to set goals and make plans for your life or are you one of those that just fly by the seat of your pants you have no goals, you have nothing, you just, you just live life every day and, and you just let life come at you. I've seen this play out in uh, 
in college, a lot of times a young, young person will go to college and they really don't know why they're going other than to probably party and spend as much of their parents' money as possible while they're doing that. But they don't really have a career goal in mind. They don't really know what they want to study. And so what happens is they end up spending and wasting a lot of time, many times because they don't have these goals. They drop out with a lot of debt. They have no degree. Or they spend a lot more time in college than they're supposed to because they just don't know what they want to do. They don't have a plan. Well, sometimes in life, it's very easy to forget why we are living life and what it's about. There are other areas of our life where if we forget what, why we're doing it, it causes us problems. For instance, why did I get married? See, if you forget that one, you'll end up losing half your stuff at some point, and you're going to mess your kids up for a long time. The, the person we married, when we married them, the goal was to spend the rest of our life with them. Through thick and thin, through good and bad, that's what we wanted. But somewhere along the line, we lose sight of that. And then we start letting the little things eat away at the marriage. And then what ends up happening is the relation gets torn apart and you just become roommates. Is that why you got married? Did you get married just to have a roommate? No. What about jobs? You know, we're, we have jobs. We, jobs are a necessary evil, sort of, unless you're doing what you love doing, and I'm fortunate to be in one of those positions. But you, you have a job to provide a living for your family. I know for many years when I worked with the company I worked for, I did it to pay, put food on the table. That was it. I'd go put my time in, go home and forget about it, go back, put my time in, and I'd draw in paychecks so that we could eat and have things around the house. But sometimes if you forget why you have the job, the job becomes your life. And then that family you're providing for, all of a sudden, you forget about them, and they get left on the back burner. See, if we're not careful we forget why we're doing what we're doing. This can happen with church also. And it can also happen in our personal faith. If we forget why we're here, if we forget why we're doing what we're doing, what can end up happening to us is we end up missing the mark. Why do you come to church? Why do you read the Bible? Why do you pray? See, if you don't have a goal in mind for these things, if you don't understand why you're doing them, what ends up happening is they become mundane tasks instead of life-changing experiences. When we don't understand why we do what we do with our faith and we just kind of go through the motions of it, faith is going to be boring. You'll spend all your time on your phone playing video games and everything else and not paying attention to anything that's going on because it's boring to you because you don't know why you're here. You don't have a purpose. Why do we teach what we teach? As a church, when we teach things, and as, per, as, as Christians, when we teach, what is the goal of our teaching? Are we simply transferring knowledge to people? Or are we seeking transformation? See, my hope is that we're seeking transformation. Because if you're seeking transformation, the way you teach changes versus just trying to shove information down somebody's pie hole. Paul is writing to the young evangelist Timothy, in the passage we're going to look at this morning. And what was happening during that time is Timothy was heading up the church that was started, and people were coming in with false teaching. And they were trying to promote this false teaching. And what it was doing is it was causing people to lose sight of why they were there and what their teaching was supposed to be about. Just quickly in verses 3 and 4, it says this. I... As I urged you when I was leaving for Macedonia, stay on in Ephesus to instruct certain people not to spread false teaching or occupy themselves with myths and, 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 
and genealogies. I couldn't get that word out in first service either. The things, such things promote useless speculation rather than God's redemptive plan that operates by faith. So these people were coming in. They were trying to get people to take their focus off what was really important in the life of being a Christian. And they would get them hooked into these endless genealogies, these endless discussions. People were trying to get people, these false teachers were trying to get people to focus on what wasn't important, to take their eye off the prize. Well, as Paul contrasts the false teachers with the real ones, he explains that the aim or goal of our teaching is love. That's the aim or the goal. That's what we're shooting for. And we're going to talk a lot about that this morning. When this passage speaks of the aim or the goal of our instruction, speaking of what Paul taught, he explains that love is the proper and expected lifestyle of the one who calls himself by the name Christian. In other words, the Bible tells us that God is love, that Jesus is God, so therefore Jesus is love, and therefore a Christian is a follower of Jesus, so therefore we are to be people of love also. Now contrast that to what the false teachers were doing. They were trying to drag people off that goal and get them to aim at things that weren't important and things that weren't true. Real love is doing what's spiritually best for one another. And the false teachers were trying to, to pull people away from that. Now, by the way, this kind of love, the love that will do what's best for other people, is not dependent on the object of the love. In other words, we look at something, I love that cat, which applies to every cat on the planet, or, you know, I love this, or I love that. Oh, that one's so cute, and if you're picking puppies, oh, this one's a little too fat, I don't like it, this one, I don't like the color, this one's got a funny mouth, this one's got, you do the same thing with cats, although I don't know how you could not like a cat, but you, you do all this stuff, and, and ultimately what you're doing is, as you're looking at these things, you're, you're, you've got a set of goals in mind that determines if you love them. Well, real, real love, the kind of love that God wants us to have, it doesn't matter what it looks like. We still love. See, this type of love is not dependent on the object. It's dependent on the lover. It's dependent on what's in your heart. This kind of love is a love that, that is a matter of the will. Look, it's easy to love somebody when they love you back, isn't it? But imagine when they don't or when they don't treat you like what you want to be treated, or they don't give you what you want. That's where it gets really hard. But yet, the right kind of love we're supposed to have says, you know what, I'm going to love you. I might not like what you're doing, but I'm still going to love you. We can have the right doctrinal stand in areas. And I've got some friends of mine in churches, boy, they got the doctrine, they've nailed it. But the problem is, they've become Christian Pharisees. They have nailed the words, but they've missed the heart. And you can teach correct doctrine, per se, but come at it from the wrong perspective, and you're just as wrong as if you're, what you're teaching is incorrect. Because when Jesus taught, it wasn't just about the words. It was about the intent. It was about the heart behind them. When we lose sight of our goal, we will go off the path and lose sight of why we are here. The focus of our study this morning, even though we're going to be in verses 3 through 7, the focus of our study is going to be basically verse 5. And in this passage, Paul clearly lays out three goals of why we teach what we teach. In verses 6 and 7, he gives us a result of what happens when we take our eyes off what we're supposed to. So let's look at verse 5. And if you're one that likes to take notes, this is a very easy outline to follow. You'll see it right, most of it in verse 5. So let's begin there. It says this. But the aim of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, 
point one, a good conscience, point two, and a sincere faith, point three or four. So when we look at this passage, the first thing we see is Paul says the aim of our instruction, in other words, what we're shooting for is a love that comes from some areas. The first one is a pure heart. So those who are trying to introduce false teachings into the mix, we're trying to get folks to focus on external or ceremonial things instead of what was really important. Now, by the way, this isn't just what false teachers come from false teaching. This can be done when we lose sight of the heart behind what we teach. In other words, as a parent, as a parent, you can either discipline or punish your children, okay? Punishing your children, I don't believe, is the right way to roll because you're really not teaching them anything other than you made mom and dad mad, so we're going to drop the hammer on you. And unfortunately, there were times I did that because I had a little bit of a temper at one point in my life. But the other thing is, when a child goes off the rail a bit, what are you really trying to do? Are you just trying to punish them for what they did, or do you want to use discipline, which means to teach, to teach them that you shouldn't do that? Now, that will involve a consequence, but the whole mindset is different. Because if you're trying to punish them, they're not going to learn anything. They're just going to learn, I need to get away with this. I need to figure out a way to do it better next time. But when you're trying to discipline them, you're trying to teach them a lesson. You're trying to help them with life. And in Christ, when we lose sight of the goal that our stuff is, our, what we do is supposed to come from a heart of love that's grounded in, first of all, uh, the, the, a pure heart, we're going to miss the mark. See, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, other than when they kind of emphasized a lot of the man-made stuff, they knew the Torah. They knew the law. Man, they could read it forwards and backwards. They knew every aspect of that law. But you know what the problem was? They used that as a hammer to say, I'm better than you. I'm going to look down on you. And they did not, they lost the concept that they're supposed to be operating from a heart of love. But they didn't do it that way. And Jesus nailed them on this. One of the passages in uh, Matthew 23, 26, Jesus, I mean, he's beating on them here. He says, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may become clean too. And then he called them whitewashed tombs and a couple other things that he kind of went at them. But, but what he was trying to get them to see is, hey, guys on the outside, man, you've, you've nailed it. Boy, you look so good. That little suit you got on, that Armani suit looking good. You got the right shoes on and the nice watches. And man, you're, you're rolling. You're looking really fly here. But the problem is your heart is a mess. It's like taking, imagine you're doing the dishes. Um, husbands, you're doing the dishes, okay? And you take the plate and you wipe the bottom of it off, okay? And you stick it in the cabinet. And then your wife or your kid comes and picks the plate up and there's food stuck all over the top of it. Or you take that cup, man, you wash that outside, but you don't clean the milk out of the inside. You want to drink out of that? Oh, it looks good until you look inside, and when we miss the mark of what God calls us to do, oh, we look good on the outside, but when God starts looking inside, it's a problem. See, a pure heart is part of the ground from which our love must flow. See, those Pharisees were teaching technically correct truth many times, but the goal of their instruction wasn't love. It was to beat on people. It was to make them feel bad. It was everything but love. In the Bible, the heart represents a person's mind, their thoughts, their moral affections, it, it encompasses who they are inside. So what is a pure heart? Well, the word pure meant to be clean, obviously, as opposed to soiled and dirty. 
Now, later on, the word pure had some more, uh, had some different suggestive uses. One of those was it was used of corn that had been winnowed and cleaned of all chaff. The other way it was used was concerning the army. An army that was pure was one that had been purified of all cowardly and undisciplined soldiers so that the only ones that were left were the cream of the crop. So if you looked and said, that's a pure army, you had no cowards and you had no undisciplined people. You had the best of the best. This term was applied to mean something that doesn't have inferior things added to the mix. And so when we talk about having a pure heart, it's a heart whose motives are absolutely pure and absolutely unmixed. There's no agenda behind them other than God loves you and so do I. At the heart of the Christian, there is no desire to show how clever we are. There is no desire to show how, how we can win an argument. There's no desire to say, hey, I'm going to make you look stupid and make you look like a, like, like a fool. Our only desire, the goal of our instruction, is love from a pure heart. That is, when I go to teach or you go to teach somebody, your desire is to help illuminate them and lead them closer to God. It's nothing else. A Christian is moved only by love of truth, love of God, and love for others. No other reason. A pure heart is one whose motives and affections are noble and unselfish. For instance, let's say we have a family pull up in a, in a Lamborghini. And they're all dressed. They, you can tell they're, they're wearing some expensive stuff. They got everything. You know they're either wealthy or super in debt. But you're going to assume they're wealthy. And then they come in and everybody just starts fawning all over and bowing down and blah, blah, blah. You know, and the preacher's like, hey, I can see, I can see some more offerings coming in here. I better be nice to this person. Or somebody, and we've had this before, come in from the ditch. Smelly, a mess. And then we just, whoa, oh. Now, one of the things I love about First Christian, we've had people come out of our ditch. We love them. We've made them feel welcome here because they're God's creatures too. They are God's children too. But my point is, why would we show favoritism to one and not to the other? Because our hearts aren't pure. And so we have to love people from a pure heart, no matter what color they are, no matter where they're from, no matter where they crawl out of. We have to love them. And we can't, we can't give preferential treatment to people just because we think they have something that we may want. A pure heart is one who's got pure motives. And see, if you're struggling with that, God can help you with that. Psalm 51.10 is a, is, a, is a very popular passage. It says, create for me a pure heart, O God. Renew a resolute spirit within me. So if you're struggling with a purity of heart, God can help you with that. You, he can help you with that. A pure heart will allow us to love even when we receive nothing in return. Because our Love is not about them, it's about us being what God called us to be. And that is difficult, isn't it? Easy to love people who love you, easy to love people who are nice to you, but boy, when the things go off the rails and you don't get what you want, it's hard to love. And that's what we need to work on. Look, we're all flawed. Not a single one of us in here are perfect with this stuff. But my love has to come from, first of all, pure heart. I love you because God loves you. No other reason. Whether you're rich, poor, black, white, purple, green, you know, if you're on Star Trek, I, it doesn't matter. God loves you, and so, so I have to do the same thing. Let's look at verse 5 again. But the aim of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So the second grounding for our love is a love from a good conscience. Now, a good conscience is an area where love has to flow, and here's what happens. First of all, what's a conscience? Technically, what a conscience is, it's, 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 an, it's an innate or an inborn faculty that prompts one to do what is right 
to do what he thinks is right and criticizes you when you do what you think is wrong. It's that little voice inside of you that says, yeah, good job, or hey, don't do that, don't do that. And when you do that thing that you shouldn't do that your conscience tells you not to do, you feel guilt, shame, doubt, fear, remorse, and despair. Now, everyone has a conscience unless you're a sociopath. Sociopaths typically don't have those. They don't really care. But a conscience will guide you, and that conscience can be trained. Scripture tells us that. And it can be seared. We'll talk about that in a moment. But here's what we're getting at, why a good conscience is important. Some people do good things because of a guilty conscience. That's what drives them, guilt. Guilt drives everything that they do. Despair, shame drives everything that they do. Loving the hard to love would, be not, would not be something they normally do, for instance. But some sense of guilt within them says, I gotta love them. Some sense of guilt says, I gotta go to church. Some sense of guilt says, I gotta read the Bible. Some sense of guilt says, I need to give some money. Some sense of guilt says, I need to pray. Some sense of guilt says, I need to give some money on the guy on the street corner. Some sense of guilt, whenever those animal commercials come on, says, I gotta give to the animal causes. Um, our love can't be grounded in guilt. It can't be. Timothy was told that God desires Christians to live a lifestyle that does not result from a guilty conscience. Now, guilt has its place sometimes. It can, you know, in the conscience, it kind of says, hey, you don't do that. You don't want to feel that way again, so let's not do it. But the fact is, when you live from a good conscience, it will produce peace, it'll produce confidence, joy, hope, courage, and contentment. If you're a person that's not experiencing those things, maybe you're letting guilt drive you. See, when you come to Christ, Romans 8, 1, I can, I can give you passages all day, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Well, what's that mean? It means that you don't have to live under guilt, shame, and despair. When you're living your life under those things, you're missing the mark. Your love isn't springing forth from a good conscience, it's springing forth from feeling bad, feeling guilty, and look, let's face it, we've done things in life that we should feel guilty about. But see, Jesus says, I take these things away from you. So quit being driven by those. If you're not experiencing the blessings of life and you're just constantly driven by guilt, maybe God's trying to tell you something and get your attention. Say, this isn't how I want you to live. When we're immersed into Jesus, we're given a good conscience. Here's what it says in 1 Peter, referring to the days of Noah. After they were disobedient long ago, when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while an ark was being constructed, in that ark a few, that is eight souls, were delivered through the water. And this prefigured baptism, which now saves you, not the washing off of physical dirt, but a pledge of a good conscience to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so what we're told is when we come to Christ, that conscience is cleansed, it's clear, we're not driven by guilt, we don't have to be motivated by it, we're motivated by that clean conscience. Our conscience can be trained, it can be calloused, it can be hardened. If your conscience is constantly telling you, don't do this, don't do this, say, nope, I'm going to do it anyway, nope, I'm going to do it anyway, eventually it's going to callous over, and then eventually it's going to be really hard, and then eventually you're going to retrain your conscience. Some people don't want to listen to God, they want to ignore their conscience and to the point where it's dulled and hardened, and then they retrain it and maybe eventually even kill it. God's word guides a good conscience. The blood of Christ cleanses that conscience. So we need to understand that. Hebrews 9.14 reminds us that how much more will the blood of Christ, 
who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our consciences from dead works to worship the living God. If you're living in guilt and, and your conscience isn't good, it's going to be hard to worship the living God because you're always going to feel guilty and think, well, I shouldn't be, I did this and I did this, so I can't. It's, it gets to be a vicious circle. We are called to love from a good conscience. We are not called to love from guilt or shame. Now, on one side of it, if you're doing things out of guilt and shame, I mean, let's be honest, people have been, if you decide to give to the animal shelter because you feel guilty about what's going on with something, I mean, the animals are going to benefit, but the thing is, that's not what drives you. Love from a clean, con a good conscience. Let's look at verse 5 again. But the aim of our instruction is love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So you can guess point three. Love from a sincere faith. A sincere faith is a faith that is real. And it's a faith that is true. It is a faith without hypocrisy. Now, it doesn't mean it's a faith without struggles. It doesn't mean it's a faith that doesn't have problems. It doesn't mean it's, not, it's a faith that sometimes you're going to get off the mark a bit. There is a big difference between being a hypocrite and struggling. A hypocrite is somebody who's pretending. A Christian who is struggling is not a hypocrite. You become a hypocrite when you quit struggling. In other words, just keep doing what you know you shouldn't do, and then you come in and pretend like everything's good. That's a hypocrite. But you're struggling with sin, which we all do. I do, you do. That's not being a hypocrite. A sincere faith is a faith that needs no mask to hire its insincerity or its inconsistency. A, a real faith, a genuine faith, a sincere faith doesn't have to wear a mask. People with a sincere faith do not have to put on a game face to come to church on Sunday or to hang out with other Christians. They just are simply the same they are each day of the week. One of the big things that drew me to Jesus, the faith that I was raised in, and maybe it wasn't a fair assessment, it was just my experience, is what I saw, because I was around a lot of these people, is they would live like they were living for the devil Monday through Saturday, and then they'd stagger into church on Sunday morning, go to the priest and do whatever they did with him, and they could start it up again on Monday. That was just what I saw. And I was turned off big time from that. My wife invited me to church when we started dating, and I started going, I started hanging out with her friends, and, and honestly, when I first started hanging out with them, I, I never really said this to Robin, but I was waiting. I'm like, okay, when are we going to see the version of church I'm used to seeing? We're going to be with these folks on Saturday night. When are they going to be Saturday night worldly people, like they're supposed to be, because that was my experience. And what was funny is, you know, these people weren't perfect. They've all had struggles. Some of them had a lot of struggles in life. But man, at that time in my life, they gave me exactly what I needed. That was to see Jesus living in their lives on days other than Sunday. In other words, they didn't just kick him out the rest of the week. And over time, I kept waiting for the shoe to drop. I kept thinking, okay, this is, no. These people did more to bring me to Christ than almost anyone. You know why? They did not preach Jesus to me. They didn't preach to me, but you know what they did? They showed me Jesus. And sometimes you're like, I can't, I'm afraid. I don't know what I'm going to say now. Eventually, you do need to talk to people. But it does not matter what you say if you don't show them. And they showed me Jesus. Some of them knew my background, and they still showed me Jesus. And that made an impact. And I think back on my life, I think if I had never met Robin, 
I'd probably be in jail. But if I'd never met Robin and I never met these people and I never did what I did, there have been people in my life I've impacted for Christ. Where would they be? I, I don't know. So I am so thankful for those examples. They were no means perfect, but I could see their faith. They had something that I had never seen before. King David, you know, he had a great faith, but was David flawed? Yeah, he was. But when David stepped out of line, what did he do? He got back on track. He repented. He didn't blame God. He didn't blame everybody else. He said, you know, I messed up. I knew better. I shouldn't have done it. He didn't gloss over the issue. He didn't say, ah, I'll just deal with God later. But he repented, and he cleaned up the problem. A sincere faith springs forth from trusting God. You'll never have a sincere faith if you don't trust God. You just won't. Because you're always worried that somebody's going to get over on you. You're always worried that somebody's going to take advantage of you. You're always worried that it's not going to work out the way you want it to, because most of the time it doesn't. But you've got to trust God. I was talking about it with a person the other day and about something similar to this. I said, look, what happened has happened. Do you trust God? Well, yeah, but. No, do you trust God? Yeah, but. Do you trust God? Yeah. No, well, you either trust God or you don't. You don't say, I trust God, but. Because when you throw the but in there, you just said, I don't really trust him because he's not doing it the way I want it done. We have to have love that's built from a sincere faith, and that sincerity won't happen if we don't trust that God can help, that God is in control, or that he's even powerful enough to change things. A sincere faith is needed if real love is going to exist and happen. Faith that trusts God enough that, that he will love as God lo commands him to love. That you'll love in spite of maybe you're going to get taken advantage of. That you'll love in spite of maybe it won't go your way. Your sincere faith will say, I trust God. He'll take care of it. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. It says this. Speaking of verse 5. Some have strayed away from these things and turned away to empty discussion. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not understand what they are saying or the things they insist on so confidently. So this point deals with love without aim. When we miss the mark on verse 5, we're not aiming in the right spot. When we miss the goal or miss our mark, we will hit something, but we won't hit what we want to hit. When I lived back in my hometown, when my wife and I first got married, we, we bought a house that had a pretty good size. It was a double, at least a double lot. And so I'd said, I used to shoot bow a lot and and I got a bow tag during deer season because I didn't want to shoot a deer. They're too cute. But I liked eating turkey, and I never shot one with a bow. But anyway, so I practiced. I set my target up. Now, the problem with my target setup is if I missed it, my neighbor's house was probably going to get a hole in it. So I had to really focus on my shot. I couldn't just go crazy. But what I focused on, and when I got the thing, I used, to, I used to trigger release so I could keep consistency. I'd bring that thing back, release it, hit the target, hit the target, hit the target. I got to be a pretty good shot with the bow. If I just closed my eyes and just spun around and then shot, I, was, I wasn't going to hit the target more like I was going to hit something or someone. Well, our faith and our teaching's aim is not to lead to empty discussions but it's to lead to life-changing and life-enhancing experiences. That's what the gospel does. If we're just trying to impart knowledge to somebody, I mean, knowledge is okay, it's good. Are you trying to do that? Or are you trying to help change, a, bring a transformation? Verse five, or excuse me, in this passage, it says in verse six, some have strayed away 
from the beautiful message of verse 5. And you know what's interesting? That word strayed, you know what it means? Miss the mark. Miss the mark. Or to go past the goal, to go beyond it. See, false teachers miss the mark set for them by a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And because they didn't understand that that's where teachings were to lead and that's where they were to come from, they started getting into these empty discussions. The, the phrase empty discussion is actually one word in the Greek. It literally means to be rendered empty, empty useless, or, or useless discourse. So it's basically you're blowing out hot air for no reason. All the talk of the false teachers led to nowhere. And when we don't understand what we're doing, we can get into these endless discussions. Our goal is transformation, not just transfer. And when you know that, you come at it from a different perspective. Years ago, my, I don't know if Robin remembers this, I still remember it. Long, long time ago when I was first into ministry, I was writing sermons. And let me tell you something, from, if you've never written a sermon before, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, but what's, you know, the easy sermon to write is a, what I would call a commentary-based sermon, where you're just spitting out facts, getting into the Greek, which I love all that nerd stuff. I was a, a weird nerd athlete, because I like the nerdy stuff too. But the thing is, one time I wrote this sermon, and for some reason I gave it to Robin to go through, and she read it. And she wasn't being mean, but she read it and said, well, so what? And I'm like, what do you mean? Well, I mean, this, she says, it's good, it's but, but what difference will it make? And see, what I was guilty of is transferring information instead of shooting for transformation. And that really made me think from that point on. And, and sometimes I have to remind myself, transformation, not transfer of information. Transformation, not transfer of information. Because when, you trans, when you're trying to go for transformation, you deal with things a little bit differently. You want to make that connection. Pa uh, Paul says in this passage that these folks that were trying to teach, he said they don't know what they're talking about. They thought that they do. They fancied themselves as teachers of the law, but they didn't do it. And a lot of times, you know, I see churches that are just focused on one thing. Like some churches, all they do is focus on the end times and revelation. Well, you know what's funny is most of those folks don't really even know what they're talking about. They'll take passages and make them fit what they want them to say. Or churches that just focus on the spiritual gifts, that's all they focus on. They don't know what they're talking about. That's not what it's about. The goal of our instruction is told to us by, it's, it's, it's the love from a, from, from, a, from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. That's the goal. And anything that leads off that, we're going to miss the mark. And when we're teaching, that's where we're teaching from. Purity. The teaching is to build love and to help other people have that pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. We are seeking to try to help people to become more Christ-like, not just pass on knowledge for educational reasons. When we can help people grow, they will reach more people for Jesus, and then we will be able to show more people more love. We are seeking to raise a, a generation of people committed to Jesus, not a bunch of Christian Pharisees. And so when we look at this passage, one of the reasons that I, that I wanted to go with this one is because I think sometimes if we're not careful, we forget why we're doing what we're doing. If your faith is mundane and just burdensome, you're probably missing the mark right now. And so my hope is that maybe this message will help bring a reset into your life. So you say, you know, I really need to get my focus. It's not about winning arguments. It's not about beating the Baptist in doctrine. But it's about this love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. When you can operate from that, your life will change. Your life will transform. The things that, you're, that are driving you, the hurts that are moving you, they no longer rule your life, but love will. 
It sounds corny, I know, but it's so true. When you have a life that's wrought with anger and hurt and pain, and usually the anger comes from the hurt and the pain, would you rather keep living that way on the short amount of time you've got left on this earth, or would you rather have joy, peace, contentment? We can have that if we can just get ourselves back in line. At this time, our praise team is going to come up and lead us in a song of decision. And if you've not accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we would love to have you come forward this morning and to, have, and to make that decision for Christ. You know, we, we offer the invitation because this is important. It's not just time, oh, the sermon's done, now let's get moving. It's a time where you've got to make a decision. Where are you going to be for eternity? What are you going to do in your life? Who's your life going to be about? What are you going to be? And who you are in Christ makes a big difference. God loved you so much that he sent his son to die on the cross for your sins so that you could have eternal life and so that you wouldn't have to live in such a manner that, that you've been living before. Jesus loves you so much that he died for you. Are you ready to give your life to him? I hope you are. If you're not, I just hope maybe today opens up your mind to considering what you need to do. If you're an immersed believer and would like to make First Christian your home, we'd love to have you come forward this morning, extend the right hand of Christian fellowship to you. If you're struggling, you need prayer, come forward, I'd be glad to pray with you. But this time, let's stand together as we sing our song of decision.
with hands held high be glorified our hearts now cry with hands held high be glorified our hearts now cry with hands held high be glorified our hearts now cry we are living When you think of 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5, which we hit four times today, actually, or we are three times. When you come to communion, I always feel like actions are important. Uh, Jesus dying on the cross, God raising him on the third day, very important. But I'm the type, too, that feels like the heart behind what's being done is vital. We'll benefit when somebody does something from bad intentions, but it's a good thing, if you know what I'm saying. But the test of something is why. What drove it? Um, when we think of our communion time, you know, we know that that cup represents the blood of Jesus that he shed on the cross. We know that the bread represents his body that was broken. We know that it says, hey, we're going to take this in our Father's house when he returns. And all that's great. It's wonderful. But I am more impressed by the why. The why is that Jesus has a pure love for us. And that pure love, look, if, if I'm the prize that he gets at the end of the rainbow for what he did, he lost, okay? I'm, I'm like the consolation trophy. But he doesn't see it that way. Because the times that I'm filthy and disgusting and horrible... He still loves me because of who he is. When King David was doing the garbage he did at times, God still loved King David because of who God was and who God is. And so when we take this communion this morning, if you don't feel unworthy, you're probably arrogant. But it doesn't matter if we feel worthy or not because God says you are. That's what's important. The world will tell you all kinds of things about yourself, but that doesn't matter. What matters is what God says you are.
and how important you are to God. What led him to do what we're represented, we're represented by this cup and loaf this morning, the motivation was pure love. And it's hard to experience that on this earth. It's very hard, but you can through Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful that we can come around this table and celebrate this time of communion, a time of remembrance, but also a time of great joy as we reflect on why it was done and as we reflect on the promises that are coming later. Lord, I pray that as we take the cup and the loaf this morning, that it helps invigorate us to love you even more. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. On the inside of your bulletin, we have our announcements for this week. Uh, Jerry's groups do not meet today. He is with his wife in Hawaii. She's on a business trip, and he gets to hang on the beach with the kids, so that's good for them. Elders and preachers, we're getting together today at 3.30. Um, Roger's Sunday night group is meeting. LOL is meeting on Tuesday, and we have our leadership team meeting on Tuesday also. Um, there is no adult Bible study in July. The teens are still meeting. I believe they're still meeting this Tuesday. The spa ladies are going to meet at Julie Reichert's house on Saturday at 11 a.m., so that'll be fun. Uh, prime time is coming up at the Olive Garden. Make sure you sign up for that. Narrow Path sign-ups coming up. We're going to go to Empire Ranch. We've got a spot picked out we're hoping we can use for where we're going to cook out, and we're going to go up the, up the mountain trail like we did, so that should be fun. On the uh, 30th of July at 5 p.m., there's going to be a singspiration here. Gospel, the, uh, we'll be singing a lot of the first service music, so if you'd like to come, that would be great. 
Operation Christmas Childs, looking for donations of school supplies. And uh, they're going to have a packing party on July 31st. And Jan Lang is looking for empty rectangular Kleenex boxes for a Kids Way art project. So if you have those, bring those into the church. Uh, I think that's all the announcements we have for today. On the back of your bulletin, we have a lot of prayer concerns and, and things we're celebrating. We, one of our Sunday school classes sends uh, funds to Show Me Christian Youth Home, and they sent us a thank you note. We have a lot of people with health concerns. We have deployed military. We have our shut-ins. And our outreach is Operation Christmas Child, and I don't know who our mission is because it, it looks like it got cut off in the, in the bulletin this week. So uh, take that home and be in prayer for it. So this time, let's stand together. We'll go to the Lord in prayer, and the band will lead us out with a song. Father God, we thank you for the many blessings we have in you. And Father, I pray that as we live this week, that we are not driven by guilt and shame, but we're motivated by the things we spoke of this morning. And Father, I thank you that we have the opportunity to live this life and I pray that we get the most of it and that we get the most out of it for you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.